ever title, but instead I just said, are you the right spouse? And you can see that's not nearly as creative as the other title. So hopefully I, I can maybe change that for the online version. So just to remind you where we were last time, we had talked about how God designs marriage and then God uh, not only designs it, uh, but he created it in marriages to put God on display, particularly his covenant grace. And we mentioned that the real tragedy of, of divorce and the real reason it's so horrific in God's eyes is that it, it is a covenant-breaking thing and it misrepresents Christ and the covenant he made with us as Christians to the world because Christ made a covenant with us when we invited him into our hearts to be our Savior. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And when we get divorced, what we're doing is leaving and forsaking. And so we're not supposed to do that. And uh, the Bible mentions uh, in Proverbs 2.17, it says, She who forsakes the partner of her youth and has forgotten the covenant of her God. So when you leave your partner, you're forgetting the covenant that you made to that partner. And uh, author Tim Keller says to break faith with your spouse is to break faith with God at the same time. If two Christians are married, part of that relationship is to keep a covenant that you made to God. So when Judy and I got married, we didn't just make a covenant with one another. We made a covenant to God. I made a vow to God to stay faithful to her, and she made a vow to God to stay faithful to me until death do us part. And so when I was summing up the last message, I, I ended with this, this phrase, that staying married is not mainly about staying in love. Now, that's what we think. We've been taught by watching TV shows and whatnot that the secret to successful marriage is keeping the romance alive and keeping... Uh, keeping in, madly in love with one another, and, and yet it's, it's what it's really about is it's about keeping covenant. It's about keeping the covenant that we made, and that's the real secret to, to staying married for 40 years or longer. So I want to jump in here, and I'm going to get to three slides after a little bit that are the three slides that you really want to take notes on. So when I get to them, I'll say, write this down. Uh, but until then, listen attentively, and you're still blessed if you take notes, I hope. Uh, but it, it's interesting, uh, this phrase that gets used in the book of Genesis, it says they're naked and not ashamed. And I don't think I've ever really completely understood that. So was this just the result of the fact that at the time it was said in Genesis that they had perfect bodies? Well, let's see. Here it is, Genesis 2, 23 through 25. Then the man said, this at last, this is after God, God has put Adam in a deep sleep and he's taken a rib out, made it into a woman. He says, this is last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife and they shall become one flesh. And then this is what it says. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And that's kind of an interesting comment about why would God even have that comment put in there. And, of course, most of us would think, well, sin hadn't happened yet, so there was no reason for shame. And Adam and Eve were probably, arguably, the two most perfect physiological specimens of mankind that were ever there, so they had no reason to be ashamed. And, and we'd be right with that, but is that all that it means? Because I think there's more if we look at the context of Scripture. So, again, it could be that everything was perfect, but Jesus refers to this passage, and he puts a kind of a new a new spin on it, and I'm thinking he would agree that just being physically perfect is not enough. If you're physically perfect, but your spouse is having a bad day, 
They could still be cranky. Uh, they could still be selfish or unkind. And they could still say something to shame you or hurt you. So it's simply not enough. Uh, the person who's looking at you for you not to be ashamed, they have to be morally upright and gracious and care for you so deeply that they would not shame you. And so uh, the real basis for a lack of shame is covenant love. So let's explain that. Look at these words that Jesus said in Mark chapter 10. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. Now those are words right out of the passage we just read from Genesis. Then he says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now we need to remember that it's not a justice of the peace or a pastor that puts a marriage together. I have the privilege of performing a lot of wedding ceremonies over the last four decades. But that's not, I didn't put people together. If they're married and they're exchanging a vow to God, God has put them together. When Judy and I got married, even though our pastor performed the ceremony, uh, it says, what therefore God has joined together. It's God that joined Judy and me together. Uh, and that's important. So if God joined us together, let not man separate it. It says, in the house, his disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, I'm not going to spend any time going into the issues of divorce and remarriage and adultery, but suffice it to say that Jesus believed that whatever God put together ought to stay together. And that's, that's the, key, the key point. So it's interesting that he emphasizes the permanence of marriage on earth. Now, Jesus was the one who told us when we get to heaven, there's no marriage nor giving of marriage in heaven. We won't be married in heaven. So if, if you uh, have to go through a period of life where your spouse dies and then later you get remarried, when you get to heaven you won't be a bigamist <laughs> because there's no marriage in heaven. Uh, you won't be married to, to multiple people uh, in heaven. So marriage, as Genesis is saying, is intended to provide wisdom for marriage long after the fall of man into sin. In other words, everything it said about marriage in Genesis 2 still applies and still holds after sin comes to this world. And we can, we can see the way Jesus just handled it in Mark chapter 10. He quotes Genesis 2 and then he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is saying what's in Genesis 2 has an enduring consequence and an enduring uh, set of principles that still last today in the New Testament times. So in other words, uh, God is saying that what's in Genesis 2 has relevance after the fall of man. It's still there. So it doesn't seem that the main point would only relate to the pre-fall of man situation, which is the perfection of their bodies. Uh, and that's something that we need to recognize. So what, is, what enables a shame-free marriage? It says, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The real reason they didn't have any shame was not just that they, they were perfect and didn't have any sin, but that they were in a covenant relationship that was created and initiated by God so that they have the ability to have a shame-free marriage. Uh, we can enjoy a shame-free marriage here if we trust that our spouse, spouse loves us and cares for us and uh, that we do the same for them. If we're in holiness and we walk together in holiness and our relationship is right with one another and right with God, then we can experience a shame-free relationship. Christiana, would you mind bringing my water up here, please? Thank you, honey. So there's two possible reasons not to experience shame. One is 
that I am perfect. Uh, and that's highly unlikely. I'll just tell you that right now. And in this case, there would be no shame because we're, we're flawless. And again, that's not likely. So what is the... Okay, thank you. Uh, what is the reason for no shame? Uh, it's because we enjoy a relationship of covenant love and Christ has forgiven us of our flaws. His blood has covered my flaws and His blood has nailed those flaws to His cross and there's no shame because His love covers a multitude of sins. First Peter 4 and verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So we can have a shame-free relationship in our marriage because I know that, that the blood of Christ has covered me from all of my sins and it's covered Judy for all of her sins. The covenant is the key. And uh, you have to notice here that when you read verse 24 and verse 25 together here, the verse 25 flows out of verse 24. So verse 24 is, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And verse 25, because they are one flesh, because God's put them in this covenant relationship together, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God initiates a covenant relationship between the husband and wife, and because of the covenant, they are not ashamed. Now, what happened when sin came to the world? Well... First of all, uh, they were no longer perfect. And, but I, but I, would, I would, you know, I, I can't wait to get to heaven and press the rewind button on a few things so I can see how things actually happen. Thank you, sweetheart. But I, I don't really imagine that the very moment that Adam and Eve, standing on the tree, had both eaten of the forbidden fruit, that in that instant, uh, Adam's hair all fell out and that they both shriveled up and looked, uh, looked 900 years old and uh, that they weren't lovely anymore. I, I, you know, I, I believe that the decay was probably more of a gradual thing for that. But the point is that even after man's fall, the design for marriage is still the same. That's why Jesus is still quoting God's design for marriage, that the two shall be one flesh and what God has put together, let not man put asunder. It's meant to be permanent on earth because it's a picture of the fact that Jesus will never abandon his bride. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Therefore, for us to be in a marriage relationship that pictures his grace toward us, we should never leave nor forsake our partners. So our marriage still should be persisting in a state without shame. Uh, Genesis 3, here's the fall. For God knows that on the day you both eat of it, this is the the tree of temptation in the middle of the garden. Uh, by the way, it's interesting that the Chinese character for the word covet, it shows a person making a decision between two trees. There's a picture of two trees in the character. And for God knows that the day you both eat of it, then your eyes will be open and you both be like gods knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, then she took from its fruit and she ate and she gave it also to her husband with her and he ate. So two things there I want you to notice is that temptation most often enters through the eyes. That's where the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of temptations come through our eyes. So we have to be very careful uh, where, where we look. And I remember a number of years ago, I was apprenticing a young man, and I was teaching him about computer networking, and today he's the CEO of a software company in Colorado. Uh, but uh, when I was teaching him, uh, we had to 
get, get in the car every day and we had to drive up uh, Central Expressway, which is U.S. Highway 75. And when we get nor just north of 635, there was this big billboard. It was a billboard advertising a particular brand of beer, and it was a light brand of beer. So, you know, they think that uh, because it's light, it won't put uh, the beer belly on you. The fact is, beer is all carbohydrates anyway, so it doesn't matter if you drink light or regular, you're still going to get a beer belly. Uh, but at any rate, and it was a picture of a young woman clad only in a bikini, and I watched his eyes as I drew near to that billboard to see if he was going to look up at it and glance at it because I knew he had made a covenant with his eyes. Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look upon a young mate. And I watched him, and sure enough, he never looked up. He never looked up. He kept his eyes on the road. He kept conversing with me. And that really impressed me about that young man, and it's one of the reasons he's such a success today. Now, look what happened immediately after fall. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. In other words, they're now aware of it, and they're evidently ashamed of it because it says, and they sewed together fig leaves, and they made for themselves coverings. So suddenly they're ashamed. Now, they still had the same body. Again, I don't believe they instantly turned ugly. They still had the same body, but it's because they have broken their covenant with God that they wouldn't eat from the tree, and they have sinned, and now they're experiencing shame for the first time. This is a significant thing, that it's that covenant relationship that makes. We, we have to understand that the immediate consequence of sin is that before the fall, what they ought to be and what they were was consistent with each other. They were the same. After the fall, what they ought to be and what they were were two different things. And it's that lack of covenant relationship that makes them suddenly wrong and suddenly why they felt ashamed and felt they had to sew clothes together. And of course, we know... If you read the rest of the story, God says, no, your clothes are inadequate. You have to wear my clothes. And God uh, sacrifices an animal and makes clothes out of uh, that to bring them. So the real purpose and permanence of marriage, as Paul said, is to put Jesus Christ on display. He says, therefore, and Paul quotes this same passage as Genesis 2 again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul makes it clear that the idea that you get married to one person and you make a covenant with God that you're going to stay faithful to that one person and you stay married to that one person for the rest of your life until death do you part, that your job is to put the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church on display. So just as Jesus will never abandon his church, he will never, we are never to abandon our spouse. And we're to remain faithful all along. So we've got to go back to the design. So the essential truth is that does, does Jesus have a perfect church today? Absolutely not. Because, you know, I would tell you that if you could find a perfect church, you should go join it. But I'll also tell you the minute you join, it won't be a perfect church anymore. Because I'm pretty sure all of us are sinners. Now, we're saved by the grace of God, and we, the focus ought to be on the fact that we're saints, not sinners. But the reality is we're all still imperfect and flawed. So what does Jesus do? He loves his bride. He died for his bride, but he puts up with his bride. He forbears his bride, and he forgives his bride. Why? Because his bride's not perfect yet. It will be one day, but it's not perfect yet. And I got news for you. When you, you get married, if you're one of those people that had those rose-colored glasses on, 
uh, before you got married, and that's what, not when you need them. But before you get married, while you're courting, you need to be looking for the flaws, and you need to be asking yourself the question, can I put up with that when we get married? When you get married, it's the time to put the, the Christ-colored glasses on and just see them as forgiven, and it shouldn't bother you when they do things that annoy you. You don't let that get to you. You can talk to them about it. You can express your desire to have them change their behavior, but you don't love them less because they do something that annoys you. And so Jesus Christ passes over the sin of his bride. His bride is free from shame, not because she's perfect, because we no longer fear that we're going to be condemned again. We no longer fear that we'll lose the love of God. Uh, that's one thing we can't lose. Uh, I feel sorry for Christians who believe that their salvation can be lost in a moment. Uh, I've got friends that go to the Church of Christ, and unfortunately they teach that you know if you sin during the week and you don't uh, partake of the Lord's Supper every single Sunday, that you, you can lose your salvation and then you have to get it again. Well, that's ridiculous. Uh, Nothing can separate me from the love uh, of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, I am kept by the power of God, and there is no greater power than that. I'm in the hand of God. There's no hand stronger than that. Uh, he's not going to let me go, and he keeps safe my inheritance in heaven. So the doctrine of justification by grace is at the heart of what makes marriage work, and it's the, at the heart of how God designed it. You see... When I got justified, it meant that I have peace with God vertically, and that means I need to extend that peace horizontally to my fellow man. And in other words, I should be able to forgive somebody else because Christ forgave me. It seems like Paul said that in Ephesians. We are to forgive one another even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. I believe that's Ephesians chapter 5. And so we need to create a space for each other to be imperfect but still love each other. So the only basis for marriage that lasts, and, and it says that Paul uses a similar phrase in Colossians that he uses in Ephesians 5, is to forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you. Let's read this passage in Colossians 3. And for the rest of the time, we're going to be in Colossians 3, so if you want to just keep your Bibles open there, that's a good thing. He says, therefore, I'm starting at verse 12, therefore, as the chosen of God, holy and dearly loved, put on affection, compassion, Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, putting up with one another, or another word would be forbearing with one another, but let's face it, we're putting up with each other sometimes. Putting up with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone should have a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, thus also you do the same. And to all these things add love, which is the bond of perfection. So he says, just as the Lord forgave you, you do the same. Now, I'm going to tell you, now, this is not an excuse for your spouse to go out and just hurt you for the rest of your marriage uh, or to get involved in adultery or get involved in pornography or get involved in something that you don't like. And, and if they're misbehaving, that needs to be confronted, but it needs to be confronted with an attitude of love. I want to help you uh, see what you're doing and understand what it's doing to me, but I'm, I'm still committed to this marriage. I'm still committed to work it out because God forgave me so I should do the same. And then verse 15, and the peace of Christ must rule in your hearts. Uh, that word rule, by the way, a better translation is umpire. Uh, I was talking to one of my married children this week and asking them about a decision that they were having to make and there was a lot of, uh, uh, in, uh, it was a difficult decision for them to make. 
But uh, my daughter said, well, neither me nor my husband have a piece about that. And I said, well, that's a good indicator. If you don't have a piece about it, you don't do it. So it's good that we look for peace as our umpire. And if, if you're making a major decision, the husband and wife need to be in peace about that decision together. And if not, don't do it until you've got that peace together. Now let's go on. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing thankfulness in your hearts to God, and everything, whatever you do in word or deed, giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus to God the Father through him. So peace ought to rule, and uh, we should do everything with thankfulness, and we ought to do everything with an attitude of praise in our hearts. Now, we're going to come back to Colossians 3, and I'm going to show you those three slides you need to take notes on in just a minute. But marriage is the doing of God. Uh, Jesus makes it very clear in Mark chapter 10, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And then he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God is joined together, let not men separate. So again, God establishes marriage. Now, this is the clearest statement in the Bible, I think, that marriage is not an act of man. It's not an institution of man. And you'll hear that all the time. Well, marriage is a man-made institution, and it, we're evolving, and we don't need marriage anymore. Just, just live together. No, that's not right. It is a God-ordained institution, not a man-created institution. Uh, and, and what God has joined together. So it is of God's doing, and Jesus says that. And again, Ephesians 5, Paul says, I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So it's meant to be a picture of the relationship of Jesus' church. And just as that endures forever, so while we're here on earth, our bond to our spouse remains forever. Marriage is all about putting the covenant of Christ on display for God. Now, Colossians 3, 6, which mentions the wrath of God. And you think, what does the wrath of God have to do with marriage. Well, let me explain. It says, Therefore put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, uncleanness, lustful passions, evil desire, and greediness, which is idolatry, because of which the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. See, sin earns the wrath of God. Now, we're Christians. Does that mean that we've never done anything to earn the wrath of God? No, absolutely not. I've done plenty to earn the wrath of God. But Jesus Christ stepped in my place and became sin for me. And God took the punishment for my sins. He took it out on his son Jesus so that I wouldn't have to pay that penalty. So it goes on to say, And although you were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, having destroyed the certificate of indebtedness in ordinances against us, which was hostile to us and removed it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Now let me, let me see if I can help you paint that picture. Jesus is hanging on the cross for six hours, from nine to noon and then from noon to three in the afternoon. And in the middle of that time, when it's at the very brightest time of day, noon, the sun should be directly overhead, it got so dark on the face of the earth that they had to light lanterns to see what was going on. Now it's an unnatural, it's a supernatural Darkness, And it became dark as in the middle of the night. And you hear Jesus saying things like, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Or uh, he'll, he'll say, 
you know, forgive them for they know not what they do. He says, I thirst. And the seven sayings from the cross. And, and, uh, and he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. He's become sin for us. And I believe there's two reasons that the earth is darkened. One is that God is turning his back on his own son because our sin is on him and God can't stand to look upon sin. But I also think the demons were celebrating. I believe they were circling the cross and just blotting out the sun. And if you don't think demons can do that, you should read the book of Revelation where God opens the bottomless pit and all the demons of hell fly out of it. And it says that they darkened the earth. So a a physical darkness from a spiritual evil. And if you've ever been around people who are truly evil, there's a sense of darkness around those very super evil people. And I've been around some of those people. And so uh, Jesus, though, as he breathes out his last, he is taking our, our sins, he's putting them between his back and the cross, and he's covering them with his blood. And the moment he died, the darkness disappears. And suddenly it's a dramatic shift from pitch black to the light of day. And not just one soldier with a voice like John Wayne but actually several soldiers made the observation, if you read Luke, surely this man was the Son of God. Because they had experienced the presence of pure evil, and the moment he dies, they experience the light of day. In fact is, the Bible says that those who were close to the cross wound up having a salvation experience, but those who were far off, they observed it from a distance They didn't get the full effect, but you could feel the effect at the foot of the cross. So much so that pagan Roman soldiers realized that Jesus was the Son of God and nobody had to teach him that. It was a phenomenal effect. I wish we could go into it. But he says he he took the certificate of indebtedness, or as the King James says, he, he basically took the list of our iniquities, our transgressions, and he put it between himself and the cross, nailed it to the cross, And he covered it with his blood and he removed those things out of our way. So God's wrath was satisfied against our sins on the cross at Calvary. Now, again, let's say, so what? What's this have to do with marriage? God took care of the wrath against Robert Rowland's sins almost 2,000 years ago. Before he did it for me and outside of me before I was even born. And that's a remarkable thing. And so Paul says, or excuse me, in Ephesians he says, Be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So what's that mean in marriage? I need to learn to forgive my spouse, and she needs to learn to forgive me in the same way that Christ forgave me. I might feel a temptation welling up in me to vent my wrath or my displeasure on my spouse when they do something that irritates me. But the reality is I'm supposed to remember that just as Christ got all of the wrath upon himself for our sins and yet he loved me so much that he says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I forgive you. That's what we need to do. Uh, Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So, let me tell you a funny story. And here comes my, my reason for the title, Why Wearing a Face Mask Could Get You Killed. So Friday night, my wife and I go to the Fort Worth Symphony. And uh, 
Uh, I'm not particularly a, um, a music person. I can't pronounce half of the composer's names correctly. I mean, there's a composer whose last name is D-V-O-R-A-K. Now, we all know that should be, be pronounced Dvorak, but it's not. It's Dvorak because he didn't know how to spell his last name. So he forgot the Z-H that should have been in the middle there somewhere. And so I'm always bugged when I read these names, then I hear them pronounced without any logic applied or phonetics or anything else. But I, I've learned to appreciate music more and more. But the way I got started in going to the symphony is like any other thing I do right as a husband, I tripped over it. So one day I'm driving in a car and I hear on KCBI an advertisement for uh, a symphony six-pack, which is you pick any six uh, symphony concerts you want to attend for one low price. And I thought, well, that sounds good. I know my wife, she majored in music, and I thought she would enjoy hearing that. And so I bought the tickets. They were cheap enough. And, and I was just doing a one-time thing that was nice, and it was close to our 25th wedding anniversary, and we're driving up 287 into downtown. And my wife suddenly says out of clear silence, it means so much to me that after 25 years of marriage, you're still investing in me. Well, it hit me like a brick that I had done something smart for a change. And I thought, I need to do this more often. So for the last 16 years, we've held season tickets to the symphony. We don't just go to six concerts. We go to all of them. And, and so, you know, if husbands, here's a little tip for you. If you accidentally do something right, try to repeat it. Uh, that's, that's my philosophy. So anyway, we go to the symphony, and we, we picked up an older couple, and the, the wife has a lot of trouble getting in and out of the car, so we usually drive them because they sit in the row right in front of us. And uh, so I, I dropped them off at the curb, and I went and parked in a parking garage, and then on the way home, I went and took, I, I, I told them, I said, y'all meet me out at the curb exactly where I dropped you off, and I'll have to go get the car. So I was walking to the parking garage to get my car so I could take it back around and pick them up. And at the top of the stairs, there were a lot of people going left and a lot of people going right. And it's kind of like you've seen freeway entrances like that. But when there's one set of stairs and people going left, people going right, it's inevitable you're going to bump into some people. Well, I bumped in or brushed someone and I said, excuse me. And then just a moment later, I feel someone holding my hand. And the first thought that went through my mind is that my wife couldn't stand an absence from me any longer and she had rushed up to, to be with me. And, and Nathan obviously knows that's not true. He, as soon as I said that, he's like, no. Uh, but uh, there was a woman holding my hand and I turned over there. And of course, I'm wearing a face mask. She's wearing a face mask. And she was probably about 5'9", five, 5'10", five, thin, and I, I'm guessing late 40s, early 50s. It's hard to tell, you know, and, and uh, it, was hard. it was probably hard for her to tell who I was because, you know, my wife says a face mask improves my looks. Uh, without a face mask, you can tell I need two pork chops tied around my neck to get the dog to play with me. And at any rate, she's, she's walking with me hand in hand, and I, I just said, excuse me, and she looked at me, and she said, oh, wrong husband, and I said, it's okay, my wife's been saying that for the last 41 years. And we had a little chuckle, and I went on. But it was, you know, I thought that was an interesting comment, wrong husband. Uh, but the, it brings up a question. Are we the right spouse for our, the one who we're married to? 
Uh, and how do we be the right spouse? Well, he gives it to us here in Colossians. He, he actually gives us a set of inner attitudes that manifest themselves in outward behaviors. And he gives us three sets. And these are the three things you need to circle in your Bibles or write down. But look what he says. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness. So there's your first pair. If you have mercies inside or compassion inside, it makes you more kind. Kind is the outward attitude or action, but it's mercy in your soul that is the attitude. And then he says, humbleness of mind or humility and meekness. So humbleness is this out, or inward attitude that produces the outward action of, of showing meekness toward others. And then he says, long-suffering, or that we would call that patience. And patience actually has two consequences to it. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. Those are the two consequences there. If any man has a quarrel against any, even as God forgave, Christ forgave you, so do ye. So we have to forgive our spouse. If the vertical, we are forgiven vertically, we need to extend that forgiveness horizontally. So let's look at these, these pairs. And first of all, just recognize you and your spouse are both imperfect. Sooner or later, your spouse, even the best of spouses, will let you down. But that's no excuse to throw them away because the church lets Christ down every day and he doesn't discard us. Uh, he still loves us. He still, his sin covers uh, our flaws. So there's going to be conflict upon what's sin and what's strange. And we won't even agree very often with what our spouse thinks what sin and strange ought to be. And the hard work of enduring and forgiving is what makes it possible for your affections to keep flourishing even after you've done stuff that maybe you thought killed off the emotions for a while. And guess what? God gets glory when two very different and flawed people love one another because of their faithfulness to the covenant that they made to Jesus Christ and they rely on Christ. We're imperfect. So here are those three inward conditions. So jot this down in the margin of your Bible out next to Colossians 3. There's compassionate heart and that leads to kindness. There's humility which leads to meekness and there's patience which leads not only to forbearance but also to forgiving. So you can add another word to what I have on the slide. Patience leads to forbearance and forgiving. So let's look at each three of these. And these are the three slides that we want to pay attention to and take notes on. So this, in King James it says here, bowels of mercy. Uh, more modern translations say compassionate hearts, and that's the more modern translation of that. So what, when your inmost being is full of mercy, that becomes the good ground that grows the fruit of kindness. So here's what you and your spouse each need to do. And, and be careful here. Don't, don't think when you hear one of these things that we're only saying uh, you need to do this or, or that your spouse needs to do this thing, but you need to do it yourself. And here, here's the first thing. You need to really start thinking about the grace of God and how much Christ has forgiven you for. All the stupid stuff, all the sins that you keep going back to and having to keep asking Him to forgive you over and over and over again. And, and, and he keeps doing it. Even though it's stuff you've asked him to forgive you before, he keeps forgiving you because he loves you that much. And, and you need to think about the grace of Christ and, and think about the fact there was not a single thing you did to earn that grace. It was provided for you long before you were ever born. God did it 
Jesus Christ suffered for your sins even before you were born. And, and Christ died on the cross before you were born. And God the Father forgave you before you were born. All you had to do is to ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. That was it. And then you were forgiven for a lifetime. And, and if we really think about that and we get God's mercy into our head and into our soul then we will have hearts of mercy and it will be easier for us to be kind toward others. Because you can remember the mess you would be in were it not for the mercies of God. Now, the problem is we've got a battle in our flesh. Our flesh does not like to be merciful. What do we want to do? Somebody hurts our feelings, we want to get even. People even buy bumper stickers for their cars. I don't get mad, I just get even. You know, and we're proud about that. We brag about it, and we shouldn't. It's not an attitude to be bragging about. Uh, we're not to get even. We're to get kind. We're to get the mercy of God into our heads. Now, look at the second pair. So write this down as well. Humility produces meekness. And so he says, put on therefore the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness. Then he says, humbleness of mind, meekness. So humility uh, or lowliness, and my, my computer took the wrong word. I was dictating, so it typed loneliness, but it should have typed lowliness. Speech recognition is not all it's cracked up to be. But humility or lowliness of mind is an inward condition. What is meekness? Meekness is the outward demeanor, and, and meekness to me means two things. One, it means that you're not demanding your own rights. It also means that you treat others better than you would treat yourselves, better than they deserve. That's what meekness is. Uh, you put others first and put yourself, well, you put God first, you put others second, you put yourself third. If you ever want to read an interesting book, there's a book written by Gail Sayers, who was a very famous football player, and for a while he roomed with a gentleman by the name of Brian Piccolo, and there's a very famous movie about it. But Gail Sayers later wrote a book called I Am Third, and by that he meant... God is first, others are second, I am third. And that's a good way, it's a good priority. I appreciate Gail Sayers having the right attitude about that. But humility is an inward condition, but the outward demeanor is treating others better than they deserve and treating others without demanding our own rights. So people whose hearts are lowly instead of proud, they act meek toward others. They serve others. Every husband, every wife need to get the gospel in their heart until they remember to be lowly and humble. What is it Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. We need to be poor in spirit. We need, that word, by the way, uh, is the Greek word ptosis, which is a medical condition when you can't open your eyelids all the way. You're, you have droopy eyelids, so it's called ptosis. And, and it's the idea of being lowly, looking down. In other words, feeling like you're not worthy to look up to the throne. You know that you're lowly. You know that you need the grace of God. And, and you get it in your head that I shouldn't be demanding my rights and I shouldn't be uh, putting myself before others because I really don't deserve anything. That's, that's the right attitude. And out of this grows the ability uh, to be meek, not demand your own rights, and serve others. So what Christ did on the cross ought to get so ingrained in our souls that we, we are not concerned about getting our own way. We just want to show his love toward others. And, and the problem is, is that our souls, our flesh, 
tend to be self-centered and very demanding. And that's what we have to, to get over. And here's the third thing. Long-suffering or patience produces forbearance and forgiveness. As he's put on there for his elective God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, that's the first pair, humbleness of mind, meekness, that's the second pair, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. So this pair's got two components in the second half. He says, if any man is a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So uh, we need to talk about the word forbear. The word forbear here uh, is used by Jesus in Luke 9 chapter, and verse 4. He says, and Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? In other words, how long will I be putting up with you? He says, I'm going to put up with you till I'm gone, but how long is that going to be? You, know, you need to get your act together. Uh, because I won't be here always. And he says, and Paul said to the Corinthians, and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. So the word forbear means to endure. There are times in marriage, no matter how good your marriage is, that you just have to endure. There are days that you get up and because either something's wrong with you or your, something has caused your spouse to be persnickety, that you just have to endure being married then, but guess what? Christ endures me. He puts up with me. He forbears me. So why shouldn't I do the same toward my fellow human being, especially the one with whom I exchange vows with God? Uh, forbear means we, we put up. And then forgiveness. There's two Greek words for forgiveness, and they both come from the root word charis, which is the word for grace. And so to forgive one another means to show grace to someone to treat them better than they deserve. It means to graciously give. Uh, now, the tendency, though, is if someone's wronged us and they come to us and ask us for forgiveness, we, we, there's a human tendency that thinks, okay, I'll forgive you, but you're going to pay. <laughs> you're going to pay for this. Uh, and that's, that's our natural tendency. But real forgiveness says, I'm not going to demand payment. I'm not going to exact a penalty of you. I just forgive you. I just let you go. I let this offense go. We don't bring this offense up. I don't keep it in a closet so I can pull it out later. I don't later have an argument with you that say, well, you, back then you did such and such. You just forgive and you let it go. That's what forgiveness is. So we treat people better than they deserve and again, even if you think they owe you a debt, you don't demand it. Forgiveness does not demand a payment, but it gives good in return for evil. That's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool thing. Forgiveness goes the extra mile. Jesus said, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Go the extra mile. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, See to it that no one pays back evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue good toward one another. This is this idea of forgiving. It goes and it pursues, it pursues good. It tries to do good for others. And Paul said to the Corinthians, he says, When we are reviled, we bless. We don't get even. We don't, we don't holler at you. We don't tell you you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. We just bless. Now, John Piper says this, and I'm just going to read it word for word because it's good. He says, now what I find so helpful here is that Paul recognizes that both forgiving and forbearing are crucial for life together, whether in church or marriage. Forgiveness says, I will not treat you badly because of your sins against me or your annoying habits. And forbearance acknowledges, usually to itself, 
those sins against me and those annoying habits really bother me or hurt me, if there were nothing in the other person that really bothered us or hurt us, there would be no need for saying endure one another. So sometimes we just have to endure. So I'm going to close, and this is where the other title comes from with a little passage. And uh, I hope you all know what cow cow pies are without me having to go in great detail. Um, My freshman year of high school, I went to Slayton High School. Slayton is a little dusty town 16 miles south of Lubbock, Texas. And once a year, we had a holiday. We had to go to school, but we had a Western carnival. That was the day everybody wore their boots and and their jeans, and we had outdoor games on that day instead of in the class studying. And uh, I set the Slayton High School record for being able to sling the most bowl. Now, what that meant is we had dried cow pies because the wet ones don't work nearly as well. And you'd pick up a dried cow pie and you would do the discus throw with this and, and you would, you'd wind up and you'd see how far you could throw it. And I think I got 143 feet, as I remember, which for something so light, that doesn't sound like a big distance, but 143 with, 43 feet with uh, a dried cow pie is, is longer than it, uh, uh, it sounds. And uh, so I want that, you know, it's probably one of the few contests or athletic events I've ever won was how far I could sling a cow pie. Uh, but I want to read you this, this rather interesting quote, and then I'll show you a few more pictures and you'll have it all. But uh, the quote is, was too long to put in the slides, but it, it just it, it bears repeating. So what about the compost pile I mentioned at the end of the last chapter? So he talked about marriage has to, be like a, has to have a compost pile. So listen to this. Picture your marriage as a grassy field. You enter it at the beginning full of hope and joy. You look out in the future and you see beautiful flowers and trees and rolling hills. And that beauty is what you see in each other. Your relationship is the field and the flowers and the rolling hills. But before long, you step in cow pies. Some seasons of your marriage, they may seem to be everywhere. Late at night, they're especially prevalent. These are the sins and flaws and idiosyncrasies and weaknesses and annoying habits in you and in your spouse. You try to forgive them and endure them with grace. But they have a way of dominating the relationship. It may not even be true, but sometimes it feels like that's all there is, cow pies. Noel and I have come to believe that the combination of forbearance and forgiveness leads to the creation of a compost pile. That's where you shovel the cow pies. You both look at each other and simply admit there's a lot of cow pies. But you say to each other, you know, there's more to this relationship than cow pies. And we're losing sight of that because we keep focusing on these cow pies. Let's throw them all in the compost pile. When we have to, we'll go there and smell it and feel bad and deal with it the best we can. And then we're going to walk away from that pile and set our eyes on the rest of the field. We will pick up some favorite paths and hills that we know are not strewn with cow pies. And we will be thankful for the part of the field that's sweet. Our hands may be dirty and our backs may ache from all the shoveling. But one thing we know will not pitch our tent by the compost pile. We will only go there when we must. This is a gift of grace that we will give each other again and again and again because we are chosen and holy and loved. So we could ask ourselves, what are we going to focus on? Are we going to focus on the things that our 
spouse does that irritate and annoy us? Or are we going to go out and look at the beautiful pasture that God gives us with a marriage that's based on a covenant relationship in, in Jesus Christ? Do we want to focus on the cow pies or on the pasture? And I hope that today you'll be stimulated to think in your hearts and minds about what it really means when it says that we're to forgive and forbear one another in the same way that Christ has forgiven us and still puts up with us. And I've got to admit that when I think about all the things I've done in my life that are wrong and how often God has to forgive me and how often I can ignore my relationship with him and how often I complain rather than thank him for the blessings he's given me. Jesus puts up with an awful lot of Robert Rowan. But he forbears me. And he forgives me. I can't tell you how precious it is that I have a wife who so patiently forbears me and who so often forgives me. She is a glimpse of glory into what my relationship with Jesus Christ is. And that's why it's been such a tremendous blessing for over 41 years. I talked to, last Sunday I went to see a friend who this last week had his 100th birthday. And he claims that Judy and I are his kids and we're part of his family. And I preached his wife's funeral about 16 years ago. And during the ceremony, he, uh, they had veterans from other wars because he's a World War II veteran. There's just not many of them left. They had Vietnam veterans and Korean War veterans and others drive by in motorcycles with American flags flying behind. And then they all got off their motorcycles and came up and asked Brother Daniel some questions and talked to him and shook his hand, congratulated him. TV cameras were out there. And uh, I remember at one point one of them asked if Mr. Daniels wanted to go for a ride on his motorcycle. And I couldn't hear Mr. Daniels' reply, so I went up to him later. I said, what did you tell him when they asked if you want to ride a motorcycle? He said, he said I said, oh, no. And he says, I mean, I said, oh, no. And, and uh, they asked him, you know, why, why did you say it like that? He says, motorcycle doesn't have enough wheels. And, you know, and I thought, well, there's one reason he lived to be 100. He knows what, what uh, risk to take and which not to take. And, but he did con- confess to me that he might ride that three-wheel motorcycle uh, that was out there. Uh, but, uh, but he commented to me, you know, his wife's been dead 16 years. He says, I just can't believe it's gone by that fast, how long ago it's been. And he, he's told me several times if he didn't serve others and help others, if he didn't have that humility and meekness quality where he's constantly doing things for other people, he said he would just sit at home and, and mope all the time. Um, he's grateful for his life, and he's one of my heroes. I just admire his attitude and that he keeps going. And, and he lived, you know, he lived to have a marriage that was, I don't know, I think they were married somewhere between 62 and 65 years before she passed away. But it was a long time. Um, but he, he had his focus certainly on the, the right things. Um, can you move me? There you go. Thank you. So we, 
We want to move into the Lord's Supper, but as we do so, I want to, I want to bring to mind some, some scriptures that we don't often read at the Lord's Supper because it's so important for us to get our minds right. And I, I usually like to go to 1 Corinthians 11 during the Lord's Supper because it just seems so apropos. But in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul was actually writing about a problem at the Corinthian church. And the problem was that they weren't honoring the Lord's Supper appropriately. He says, For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are proved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, in one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone takes before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and the other is drunken. What, have you not houses to eat and drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say unto you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Basically it says they came together and they had the, taken the Lord's Supper and they had said, okay, we're going to feast together first. And they would not only feast, but they'd oftentimes get drunk and they would do it there at the church. They were uh, in Corinth. There was uh, basically a, a, a Diana uh, who was the god, moon goddess and there were other uh, temples to uh, Artemis and to, um, I'll, I'll think Minerva, I can't think of her Greek name at the moment, uh, but at any rate, Athena. Uh, but there were these temples and they, they worshipped and, and there was this attitude of hedonism that went on in Corinth and it had kind of gotten into a lot of the church there. And he says, listen, this is something that deserves our respect and our reverence and you need to partake of it worthily. If you're going to do eating, do that somewhere else. But when you come to the Lord's Supper, that should be the one thing that you do. And, and then he goes on, he says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment or damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He says, We're part of Christ. So anything we do, if we join ourselves to sin... We're making Christ the partner to, to that sin, and that can't be. So we need to make sure that we're right. We need to have our sins confessed. He says, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, many sleep. He says, God takes this so seriously that some people got sick because they, they took it with the wrong attitude or they didn't confess their sins before they took it. And, and he says, you need to take it worthily. You need, now, let's, let's face it, none of us are worthy to take the Lord's Supper. The reality is, though, that we can confess our sins and God can make us holy. Um, and that's, that's what we need to do. And then he goes on to say, so if we, for if we should judge ourselves, we should not be judged. In other words, take a moment before you do this. We're going to pause for a moment of silent prayer to give you an opportunity to do this. So examine your own heart. Are things right between you and your spouse? Are things right between you and your kids? Are things right between you and your parents? Um, and are things right between you and your God? And if not, now's the time to ask God to forgive you. Now's the time to do it worthily. Which means, and again, we're not worthy. Christ is the only one worthy. But we've got to make sure things are right with him before we do this. For, but when we are judged, we're chastened to the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, Carry one for another, and if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together into condemnation, and the rest I'll set in order when I come. 
So first thing I want to do is let's just pause for a moment of prayer. And this prayer should be for you to ask God to forgive you of anything that you haven't done for a while. Ask him to forgive you for the things that you did do that you shouldn't. And ask God or to forgive you for the, maybe the way you treated your spouse that you shouldn't have. Let's go to the Lord in a silent word of prayer and then I'll conclude us in just a moment.